Guy Mannering or the Astrologer by Sir Walter Scott. Volume 2, Chapter 17. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 2, Chapter 17. Say from whence you owe this strange intelligence, or why upon this blasted heath you stop our way with such prophetic greeting. Speak, I charge you. Macbeth. Upon the evening of the day when Bertram's examination had taken place, Colonel Mannering arrived at Woodbourne from Edinburgh. He found his family in their usual state, which probably, so far as Julia was concerned, would not have been the case had she learned the news of Bertram's arrest. But as, during the Colonel's absence, the two young ladies lived much retired, this circumstance fortunately had not reached Woodbourne. A letter had already made Miss Bertram acquainted with the downfall of the expectations which had been formed upon the bequest of her kinswoman. Whatever hopes that news might have dispelled, the disappointment did not prevent her from joining her friend in affording a cheerful reception to the Colonel, to whom she thus endeavoured to express the deep sense she entertained of his paternal kindness. She touched on her regret that at such a season of the year he should have made, upon her account, a journey so fruitless. That it was fruitless to you, my dear, said the Colonel, I do most deeply lament, but for my own share I have made some valuable acquaintances, and have spent the time I have been absent in Edinburgh with peculiar satisfaction, so that on that score there is nothing to be regretted. Even our friend the Dominie is returned thrice the man he was, from having sharpened his wits in controversy with the geniuses of the northern metropolis. Of a surety, said the Dominie with great complacency, I did wrestle, and I was not overcome, though my adversary was cunning in his art. I presume, said Miss Mannering, the contest was somewhat fatiguing, Mr. Sampson. Very much, young lady, howbeit I girded up my lawns and strove against him. I can bear witness, said the Colonel, I never saw an affair better contested. The enemy was like the Maharatta cavalry. He assailed on all sides and presented no fair mark for artillery, but Mr. Sampson stood to his guns notwithstanding, and fired away, now upon the enemy and now upon the dust which he had raised. But we must not fight our battles over again to-night. To-morrow we shall have the whole at breakfast. The next morning at breakfast, however, the Dominie did not make his appearance. He had walked out, a servant said, early in the morning. It was so common for him to forget his meals that his absence never deranged the family. The housekeeper, a decent old-fashioned Presbyterian matron, having as such the highest respect for Sampson's theological acquisitions, had it in charge on these occasions to take care that he was no sufferer by his absence of mind, and therefore usually waylaid him on his return to remind him of his sublunary wants and to minister to their relief. It seldom, however, happened that he was absent from two meals together, as was the case in the present instant. We must explain the cause of this unusual occurrence. The conversation which Mr. Playdell had held with Mr. Mannering on the subject of the loss of Harry Bertram had awakened all the painful sensations which that event had inflicted upon Samson. The affectionate heart of the poor Dominie had always reproached him that his negligence in leaving the child in the care of Frank Kennedy had been the proximate cause of the murder of the one, the loss of the other, the death of Mrs. Bertram, and the ruin of the family of his patron. It was a subject which he never conversed upon, if indeed his mode of speech could be called conversation at any time, but it was often present to his imagination. The sort of hope so strongly affirmed and asserted in Mrs. Bertram's last settlement had excited a corresponding feeling in the Dominie's bosom, 
which was exasperated into a sort of sickening anxiety by the discredit with which Pleydell had treated it. Assuredly, thought Sampson to himself, he is a man of erudition and well skilled in the weighty matters of the law, but he is also a man of humorous levity and inconsistency of speech, and wherefore should he pronounce ex cathedra, as it were, on the hope expressed by worthy Madame Margaret Bertram of Singleside? All this, I say, the Dominie thought to himself, for had he uttered half the sentence his jaws would have ached for a month under the unusual fatigue of such continued exertion. The result of these cogitations was a resolution to go and visit the scene of the tragedy at Warwick Point, where he had not been for many years, and indeed since the fatal accident had happened. The walk was a long one, for the point of Warwick lay on the farther side of the Ellangowan property, which was interposed between it and Woodbourne. Besides, the Dominie went astray more than once and met with brooks swollen into torrents by the melting of the snow, where he, honest man, had only the summer recollection of little trickling rills. At length, however, he reached the woods which he had made the object of his excursion, and traversed them with care, muddling his disturbed brains with vague efforts to recall every circumstance of the catastrophe. It will readily be supposed that the influence of local situation association was inadequate to produce conclusions different from those which he had formed under the immediate pressure of the occurrences themselves. With many a weary sigh, therefore, and many a groan, the poor Dominie returned from his hopeless pilgrimage and wearily plodded his way towards Woodbourne, debating at times in his altered mind a question which was forced upon him by the cravings of an appetite rather of the keenest, namely, whether he had breakfasted that morning or no. It was in this twilight hour, now thinking of the loss of the child, then involuntarily compelled to meditate upon the somewhat incongruous subject of hung beef, rolls and butter, that his route, which was different from that which he had taken in the morning, conducted him past the small ruined tower, or rather vestige of a tower, called by the country people the Came of Dernclou. The reader may recollect the description of this ruin in the twenty-seventh chapter, as the vault in which young Bertram, under the auspices of Meg Merrilies, witnessed the death of Hatterick's lieutenant. The tradition of the country added ghostly terrors to the natural awe inspired by the situation of this place which terrors the gypsies who had so long inhabited the vicinity had probably invented, or at least propagated, for their own advantage. It was said that, during the times of the Galwegian independence, one Hanlon MacDingaway, brother to the reigning chief, Narth MacDingaway, murdered his brother and sovereign, in order to usurp the principality from his infant nephew, and that, being pursued for vengeance by the faithful allies and retainers of the house, who espoused the cause of the lawful heir, he was compelled to retreat, with a few followers whom he had involved in his crime, to this impregnable tower called the Came of Dernclou, where he defended himself until nearly reduced by famine, when, setting fire to the place, he and the small remaining garrison desperately perished by their own swords, rather than fall into the hands of their exasperated enemies. This tragedy, which considering the wild times wherein it was placed, might have some foundation in truth, was larded with many legends of superstition and diablerie, so that most of the peasants of the neighbourhood, if benighted, would rather have chosen to make a considerable circuit than pass these haunted walls. The lights often seen around the tower, when used as the rendezvous of the lawless characters by whom it was occasionally frequented, were accounted for under authority of those tales of witchery in a manner at once convenient for the private parties concerned and satisfactory to the public. 
now it must be confessed that our friend samson although a profound scholar and mathematician had not travelled so far in philosophy as to doubt the reality of witchcraft or apparitions born indeed at a time when a doubt in the existence of witches was interpreted as equivalent to a justification of their infernal practices a belief of such legends had been impressed upon the domine as an article indivisible from his religious faith and perhaps it would have been equally difficult to have induced him to doubt the one as the other with these feelings in a thick misty day which was already drawing to its close domine sampson did not pass the came of dernclou without some feelings of tacit horror what then was his astonishment when on passing the door that door which was supposed to have been placed there by one of the latter lairds of ellangowan to prevent presumptuous strangers from incurring the dangers of the haunted vault that door supposed to always be locked and the key of which was popularly said to be deposited with the presbytery that door that very door opened suddenly and the figure of meg merrilies well known though not seen for many a revolving year was placed at once before the eyes of the startled dominie she stood immediately before him in the footpath confronting him so absolutely that he could not avoid her except by fairly turning back which his manhood prevented him from thinking of i kenned you would be here she said with a harsh and hollow voice i ken why you seek but you maun do my bidding get thee behind me said the alarmed domine avoid ye conjuro te skeletissima nequissima spurquissima inquissima atque miserima conjuro te meg stood her ground against this tremendous volley of superlatives which samson hawked up from the pit of his stomach and hurled at her in thunder is the carl daft she said we is glamour conjuro continued the domine abjuro contestorat que viriliter impero tibi what in the name of satan are ye feared for we your french gibberish that would make a dog sick listen ye stick it stiller to what i tell ye or ye shall rule it while there's a limb o' ye things to another tell colonel mannering that i ken he's seeking me he kens and i ken that the blood will be wiped out and the lost will be found and bertram's right and bertram's might shall meet on ellangowan height hi there's a letter to him i was going to send it another way i cannot write myself but i have them that will both write and read and ride and rin for me tell him the time's coming now and the weird's dreed and the wheels turning bid him look at the stars as he was looked at them before will you mind all this assuredly said the dominie i am dubious for woman i am perturbed at thy words and my flesh quakes to hear thee they'll do ye nail though and maybe muckle good avoid ye i desire no good that comes by unlawful means fool body that thou art said meg stepping up to him with a frown of indignation that made her dark eyes flash like lamps from under her bent brows fool body if i meant ye wrong couldna i clod ye over that craig and would man ken how ye came by your end more than frank kennedy hear ye that ye worry crow in the name of all that's good said the dominie recoiling and pointing his long pewter-headed walking cane like a javelin at the supposed sorceress in the name of all that is good bide off hands i will not be handled woman stand off upon thy own proper peril desist i say i am strong lo i will resist here his speech was cut short for meg 
armed with her supernatural strength, as the dominie asserted, broke in upon his guard, put by a thrust which he had made at her with his cane, and lifted him into the vault as easily, said he, as I could sway a kitchen's atlas. "'Sit down there,' she said, pushing the half-throttled preacher with some violence against a broken chair. "'Sit down there and gather your wind and your senses, you black-barrowed trammeler kirk that ye are. Are ye fool or fasting?' "'Fasting from all but sin,' answered the dominie, who recovered his voice, and finding his exorcisms only served to exasperate the intractable sorceress thought it best to affect complacence and submission inwardly coming over however the wholesome conjurations which he durst no longer utter aloud but as the dominie's brain was by no means equal to carry on two trains of ideas at the same time a word or two of his mental exercise sometimes escaped and mingled with his uttered speech in a manner ludicrous enough especially as the poor man shrunk himself together after every escape of the kind from terror of the effect it might produce upon the irritable feelings of the witch meg in the meanwhile went to a great black cauldron that was boiling on a fire on the floor and lifting the lid an odour was diffused through the vault which if the vapours of a witch's cauldron could be in aught be trusted promised better things than the hell broth which such vessels are usually supposed to contain it was, in fact, the savour of a goodly stew, composed of fowls, hares, partridges and more game, boiled in a large mess with potatoes, onions and leeks, and from the size of the cauldron appeared to be prepared for a half-dozen people at least. "'See, you hae eat nothing today,' said Meg, heaving a large portion of this mess into a brown dish, and strewing it savourily with salt and pepper. "'Nothing,' answered the dominie. Skeletissima, that is, good wife. Hi then, she said, placing the dish before him. There's what will warm your heart. I do not hunger, Malefica, that is to say, Mrs. Merrilies, for he had said unto himself, The savour is sweet, but it hath been cooked by a Canadia or an Erichtho. If ye dinna eat instantly and put some salt in ye, by the bread and the salt, I'll put it down your throat with a cutty spoon, scalding as it is and whether you will or no gape sinner and swallow samson afraid of eye of newt and toe of frog tiger's children's and so forth had determined not to venture but the smell of the stew was fast melting his obstinacy which flowed from his chops as it were in streams of water and the witch's threats decided him to feed hunger and fear are excellent causists saul said hunger feasted with the witch of endor and quoth fear the salt which she sprinkled upon the food showeth plainly it is not a necromantic banquet in which that seasoning never occurs and besides says hunger after the first spoonful it is a savoury and refreshing viands so you like the meat said the hostess yea answered the dominie and i give thee thanks scelaratissima which means mrs margaret i will eat your fill but an ye kenned how it was gotten ye maybe wouldna like it so well samson's spoon dropped in the act of conveying its load to his mouth there's been many a moonlight watch to bring all that trade together continued meg the folk that are to eat that dinner thought little o' your game laws is that all thought samson resuming his spoon and shoveling away manfully i will not lack my food upon that argument now you maun take a dram i will quoth samson conjurote 
that is, I thank you heartily, for he thought to himself, in for a penny, in for a pound, and he fairly drank the witch's health in a cup full of brandy. When he had put this copstone upon Meg's good cheer, he felt, as he said, mightily elevated and afraid of no evil which could befall unto him. "'Will you remember my errand now?' said Meg Merrilies. "'I ken by the cast of your eye that you're another man than when you came in.' "'I will, Mrs. Margaret,' repeated Samson stoutly. "'I will deliver unto him the sealed epistle, and will add what you please to say by word of mouth.' "'Then I'll make it short,' says Meg. "'Tell him to look at the stars without fail this night, "'and to do what I desire him in that letter as he would wish.' that Bertram's right and Bertram's might should meet on Ellen Gowan height. I have seen him twice when he saw now me. I ken when he was in this country first, and I ken what's brought him back again. Up and to the gate. You're o'er long here. Follow me. Samson followed the Sibyl accordingly, who guided him about a quarter of a mile through the woods by a shorter cut than he could have found for himself. Then they entered upon the common, Meg still marching before him at a great pace, until she gained the top of a small hillock which overhung the road. Here, she said, stand still here. Look how the setting sun breaks through yon cloud that's been darkening the lift all day. See where the first stream of light falls. It's upon Donagild's round tower, the oldest tower in the castle of Ellangowan. That's no for nothing. See as it's glooming to seaward upon yon sloop in the bay. There's no for nothing neither. Here I stood on this very spot, said she, drawing herself up so as not to lose one hair-breadth of her uncommon height, and stretching out her long sinewy arm and clenched hand. Here I stood when I told the last laird o' Ellen Gowan what was coming on his house, and did that far to the ground, na, it hit even o'er a sair. And here, when I break the wand of peace o'er him, here I stand again to bid God bless and prosper the just heir of Ellangowan, that will soon be brought to his ain, and the best laird he shall be that Ellangowan has seen for three hundred years. I'll no live to see it, maybe, but there will be many a blithe eye see it though mine be closed. And now, Abel Samson, as ye load the house of Ellangowan, away with my message to the English colonel, as if life and death were upon your haste. So saying, she turned suddenly from the amazed Dominie, and regained with swift and long strides the shelter of the wood, from which she had issued at the point where it most encroached upon the common. Samson gazed after her for a moment in utter astonishment, and then obeyed her directions, hurrying to Woodbourne at a pace very unusual for him, exclaiming three times, prodigious 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 end of volume two chapter seventeen